What you're about to watch is a recorded live interview with ARK Invest cryptocurrency division, where we get to go deep on cryptos, NFTs, and more. I do have to add a disclaimer here though. So on screen now, you're going to see a disclaimer that ARK Invest requested be added. There were also segments of this recorded live interview that had to be removed. Unfortunately, I was not able to post this live, but we can blame the SEC for that. That is not ARK Invest's fault. I love ARK Invest. So without further ado, let's get into the video. I do want to quickly mention though, make sure to get yourself 30% off using the coupon code down below on those amazing programs for building your wealth that does expire in two days. Thank you very much for watching. Let's get into it. Hey everyone, me Kevin here, uh, back and super excited today to be talking about the future of cryptocurrency, to talk about the future of crypto, especially Bitcoin and Ethereum, and I'm sure we'll talk non-fungible tokens as well, and multi-layered art. Oh my gosh, there is so much to talk about and so much to understand. I had to bring in an expert, and who better? Then an amazing analyst over at ARK Invest, Yassine, please introduce yourself, tell us about yourself, what you do, and how you know so freaking much about the cryptos. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kevin. Great to be here. Um, I'll, I'll start by saying I've watched a few of your videos and, and the uh, vibrant energy uh, that we can feel through the screen is always just a, a pleasure. So thanks for everything that you do. Uh, <laughs> it's all coffee. It's funny. I don't, I don't drink coffee. Uh, so Probably better. It's it's I can only imagine um, how much of a, a boost that that might be. Uh, but yeah, it's it's great to be here. Um, so I like you sort of prefaced. Um, am a crypto analyst at uh, Ark Invest. I joined in 2018. Um, so actually, in the depths of uh, of a bear market uh, right after the 2017 crash. Um, so a little bit of, of context there. Um, prior to Ark, I I was at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm studying uh, systems engineering and, and finance. Um, and uh, actually very early on, uh, told myself that I don't want to follow the uh, traditional route of investment banking or consulting and, and going through kind of the traditional recruiting process. Um, so, you know, ended up uh, being interested in, in the venture capital world. Uh, which like as a as a as a graduate or as an as a student is, is sort of difficult to tap into. But cold emailed a bunch of VCs, um, you know, had an opportunity to, to intern at one. Um, and there they gave me uh, the free reign to explore whatever industry I wanted to from both the tech and investment perspective. Um, and so that was actually right um, during the 2017 bull market. Um, and I chose crypto uh, and wow. told myself that uh, this is definitely what I wanted to do full time. Um, so committed to figuring out a way to do that full time. Um, found Arc um, in in 2018, my senior year, actually through Twitter. Um, you know, we can go into sort of the the open research ecosystem that that Arc uh, prides itself on. Um, and you know, DM'd one of their former analysts. Um, told them I was interested, started sharing some random content in crypto myself, and then and the rest is history. So uh, I've been there ever since, and uh, it's been it's been quite a fun ride. So what you're saying is the way you got your position at ARC was by sending them free research. <laughs> in a lot of ways, yeah. uh, that's exactly uh, the mindset, at least. I yeah. think that, um, you know, we, we often get so much inbound of like, okay, how, how do you join ARC? Or, or you know what's oh, what's sure. what's the sort of um, approach to 
um, making a, a name for yourself in, in the industry. And, and the real answer to that is by leveraging the internet. Um, the internet is, is a tool where, you know, you can basically share an idea and it's very meritocratic in that if that idea is good, other people will share it. Um, and, uh, and if you keep sharing ideas without any expectation of anything in return, eventually someone you want to see it sees it. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that's been, that was sort of my approach where it's like, I'm just going to start a Twitter page and just start tweeting about random things. And I actually started by just synthesizing things that were interesting to me. It really wasn't original thought. It was just a lot of smart people saying really interesting things and maybe figuring out ways to repackage that. Um, and so, you know, ARC, uh, and, you know, as you probably might know, you know, we were pretty active on social media and it's by design, it's a, an explicit part of our research process, um, you know, where we think that information is increasingly becoming commoditized. Um, and, you know, there's no longer a value add or a competitive edge in being black box in your approach right. to, to research. Um, rather, um, by sharing your research, not as it's complete, but as it's evolving, um, you can really get immediate feedback um, and uh, be able to sort of battle test your assumptions um, in ways that sort of a, a maybe a five to 10 person investment team in, in internal operations uh, might not be able to do as effectively. Um, so part of uh, Kathy's reason for founding ARC uh, was because traditional compliance teams weren't set up uh, to handle um, kind of the research involved in identifying disruptive innovation more broadly. Um, and so, you know, it, the, the sort of social media presence is really more of a research angle than it is like a marketing angle. Um, wow. And so, you know, I found my, 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 my job because I found a tweet that I thought was interesting and DM the analyst and then the rest is history. Right. So, um, to, to all, so cool. yeah, <laughs> to, to all the people so who I, are sort of a, a aspiring to, yeah to get into this i mean it just goes to show like you can if you provide value to society like good things can come back so this got you uh, yeah. a seat at arc essentially so you're i imagine a full-time employee probably you know benefits everything uh it, which is amazing and i'm, I'm speculating and maybe you can enlighten that what's the <laughs> and i want to talk about crypto obviously but what's like the work-life balance like i mean it, it, do, you, do you have set hours or are you just always on i mean yeah you got a meeting right after this is you know is kathy on you with a whip what's going on here yeah sure let me just close my door one second yeah yeah take your time i'm so excited to talk about crypto too we'll be talking about everything so oh, yeah, absolutely fun. i mean crypto that's uh, that's the that's the fun part we'll get into the fun yeah. part um yes but yeah i mean the uh sorry can you hear me i can hear you you're good yeah i've just given you the spotlight <laughs> oh god um so yeah, I mean, the the work life balance. Well, it's funny because cri the crypto markets trade 24 seven. So, you know, you're you're if, if you fall into the rabbit hole very quickly, it's like you're kind of just constantly working all the time. Thankfully, I, I enjoy what I do. Uh, but but to be honest, it's uh, the analyst role is um, not really defined um, as traditionally as like a maybe a, a traditional investment shop might define it, where, you know, it's very entrepreneurial um, in its approach. Um, where you know analysts are, are are really able to define the roles as the as what they want and in terms of like the in, there's a lot of encouragement to take initiative um, and the base is obviously you know uh, 
covering your theme. So we're not really divided into sort of sectors. So I, I cover crypto. Um, we have analysts that cover genomics and energy storage and DNA and, and, and DNA sequencing and um, uh, AI, robotics. So, you know, everyone covers their own theme. Um, and then from there, it's just, you know, trying to figure out new interesting ways to think about the space. So coming up with sort of provocative research, sharing that research as it's evolving. Um, and then of course, uh, figuring out ways to translate that research into actual portfolio management um, and investment decisions. Um, so, you know, every morning we're on a morning meeting with Kathy um, and she is basically saying, okay, give us the news. Uh, is there anything actionable? Is there anything interesting? Um, and then from there, she's able to synthesize and, and sort of uh, and end up making the, the relevant portfolio management decision. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really just a, a front row seat into all things tech, uh, it, however you want to define that. Um, and the work-life balance is, it's, it's fine. It's nothing. Oh, uh, good. Yeah, it's, okay. it's, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, I guess you, you can probably essentially work market hours and do your research whenever you want outside of those, which is kind of neat. Uh, what, uh, or even within them. Uh, so let's touch on crypto, though, because there are a lot of people who are very skeptical of crypto. A lot of people even say that one of the reasons Tesla started its sell-off was because they didn't agree with money going into Bitcoin. Uh, we One of the theories I have is that Bitcoin might be very volatile, but I don't see it as risky. I don't necessarily associate that volatility with risk. Um, wow. I think that the, the interesting thing is the hardest part for Bitcoin, in our opinion, was to get from zero to one. Um, you have to understand that like the evolution of Bitcoin didn't start with like a market price where you can buy Bitcoin on exchanges. Uh, it, it really started as this uh, digital like collectible uh, that was uh, part of a very uh, you know small group of cypherpunk enthusiasts who were just cryptographic uh, or cryptography nerds. Um, and and uh, that sort of evolved very organically into something that could potentially be used as uh, a mechanism to, you know, store and, and transfer value um, and create sort of this internet native uh, monetary commodity. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the, I would say the first thing of like, you know, can Bitcoin go to zero? I mean, yeah. I think that the strongest Bitcoin holders will tell you that uh, at any opportunity they see a dip, they'll probably be accumulating Bitcoin. Um, so there's what's called sort of those buyers or holders of last resort. Um, and there's a big enough uh, holder of last resort where, you know, it's very likely that they're going to be buying before Bitcoin goes to zero. Um, and then on the volatility, I think that's a really interesting point that um, yeah. a lot of people um, tend to misunderstand, you know, Bitcoin's volatility, right? They basically point to it as this store of value de deal breaker, right? Like, why would anyone, why would anyone want to store value in an asset that's going to have these dramatic day-to-day price swings um yeah. you know <laughs> it can be crazy it, it, <laughs> but then again look at stocks today <laughs> exactly um but if you think about it um yeah. bitcoin's volatility in a lot of ways actually highlights the credibility of its of its monetary policy um so there's something um called the impossible trinity which is uh, a macroeconomic policy trilemma which you know i i urge you um or the viewers to, to look into but it illustrates that, um, you know, when forming uh, uh, monetary goals, you have these policymakers that are able to satisfy two of three objectives. They can never okay. satisfy all three, but they can satisfy two of the three. 
and those this is called the the trinity i'm gonna write this down yeah, the, the monetary trinity it's a it's a macroeconomic policy trilemma if you google macroeconomic impossible trinity um it, it'll basically um highlight sort of what policymakers think of when dictating um mac uh, monetary policy goals so the so the, the three options are um you know a fixed exchange rate uh free capital movement and an independent monetary policy so something like the there there you go exactly something like the uh the uh the classic gold standard um the fixed exchange rate and free capital movement were chosen um and uh an independent monetary policy uh was uh uh was was sort of sacrificed um with with bitcoin bitcoin has basically chosen an independent monetary policy so it's not backed by anything really right um and free capital movement meaning that anyone can go in and out of the asset as they please and so as a result of that, you don't really have a fixed exchange rate. What that means is that it is being priced exclusively as a function of demand. Um, so um, because there is no sort of stable peg, um, you're yeah. naturally going to get these price swings. Um, and it really just highlights that anyone can go in and out of it and that it is not tied to any specific monetary policy. Um, so, you know, you just have to think of Bitcoin as choosing uh, a different uh, set of trade-offs when dictating its monetary policy. Um, you know, the volatility is, is coming, uh, but in, in, in the volatility exists, but in return, it's really just an emergent property because you have these scarce, uh, this scarce asset that only has 21 million in circulating supply um, that anyone can access. Um, so that's, that's I, I got to ask about that. I mean, though, it, I mean, you've got uh, like Ether and, and Bitcoin Cash and now you've got Cardano. I mean, there's so many of these other currencies. What's to stop like, uh, you know, the next Bitcoin from coming around and people like, man, BTC too slow. Ten, ten yeah. minutes to verify transactions. I'm out of here. That's a good question. Um, and we we often get that critique a lot. Right. Bitcoin is yeah. the mind space to Facebook. It's uh, it's too slow. Oh. It's <laughs> it's uh it, it's just it's just basically not going to sustain itself over the long term um yeah. again I, I think the framing here uh are, are, is twofold the first is um you know I, I like the famous quote by thomas Sowell that where he states uh there are no solutions there are only trade-offs um so that as a framing in the crypto world is extremely important um where you know you can't have this perfect um, network um, where if you're going to see like this is the Bitcoin killer, it's faster, it's more decentralized. It's not without explicit trade-offs. Um, so, you know, to start like Bitcoin being slow um, yeah, is sure. really uh, a trade-off that it makes for being highly secure and highly decentralized. And when you mm -hmm. think about the value proposition of these networks, it's not so much as a convenience of payment. It's not to really compete with Visa it's to compete as an alternative to central banking where you need high assurances and guarantees to settlement. And you can't have those high assurances and guarantees without the security guarantees that Bitcoin um, introduces. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is how exactly um, are these assets, how do they accrue value, right? What makes these assets valuable? Why is Bitcoin more valuable than another asset? Because at the end of the day, this is open source software um, and, it, and it is a technology that technically can be replicated. 
Um, but I think that Bitcoin's value specifically is not replicated or can't be replicated by software alone. Um, and you have to actually look at the network effects that Bitcoin has built that are irreplicable. So an example that we like to give is imagine that you were given the source code of Facebook, right? And you're like, okay, here's the source code of Facebook, but you can't get the 50,000 employees. You can't get the 2.6 billion users. You can't get the, the leadership and the team, but you can get Facebook source code. So in the same way, it's like, okay, well, here's a Bitcoin cash or a Litecoin that looks cosmetically similar to Bitcoin, but you're not getting the infrastructure and liquidity. You're not getting the brand and recognizability um, and network effects, especially when it comes to a non-productive asset like Bitcoin is its most important moat. Um, and it is one that is sort of defensible um, in ways that technology alone cannot replace. Um, so the better, quicker, faster, cheaper, if no one is adopting it, isn't going to, um, you know, really yield any benefits to the end user. Um, so, you know, that's that's sort of that's sort of our take there is that network effects are the most important thing. And Bitcoin has been able to build a network effect that is, frankly, um, we believe uh, not replicable. Now, you invest, I believe, at ARK in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust because you can't hold Bitcoin directly in an ETF. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Can you buy the Ether or the, the new one that just took place, number three, uh, Cardano? Can you buy that? Uh, so there, there, there are questions. Um, you're, you're right uh, in that we are a 40 act product or ETFs are a 40 act product. Um, and so, you know, we can't hold the underlying. Um, but, you know, there are uh, uh, securities that like the Grayscale Bitcoin Investment Trust that truck that track Bitcoin's underlying. Um, but even those have, you know, specific limitations um, as well. Um, and so you can imagine a scenario where equities sell off and Bitcoin rises and you're basically stuck um, uh, being overexposed to Bitcoin in this specific product. Um, so all that to say that, um, you know, our our exposure uh, to, to Bitcoin, um, you know, in these products have probably been um, relatively underweight, our, our conviction. Um, and uh, when it comes to other products like in the ETH, uh, grayscale product or the Cardano or what whatnot. Um, those, e even if we were interested in other assets, um, and there are some interesting assets. I think Ethereum is definitely an interesting complement to Bitcoin. Um, the liquidity there um, is just is simply you know not something that that is it's not liquid enough for us to gain exposure at scale um, mm -hmm. to those specific products. Um, in addition to the massive premium that you get on those products relative to NAP. Um, so I, mean, I don't want to go down like a regula regulation uh, like rabbit hole, but I got to ask you, I mean, it, it sounds to me like with this qualified income rule or unqualified income rule, here's regulation again, kind of potentially limiting innovation. Am I wrong to say that? Um, so with this rule specifically, not really. Uh, the reason why is because it's it's actually a commodities rule. So it's the same mm -hmm. thing if you had gained exposure to gold, a gold ETF in an equity ETF. Uh, but that doesn't mean that your broader point is not uh, sound in that, um, you know, we especially in the U.S., uh, you know, there needs to be careful consideration, we believe, in, um, you know, promoting Bitcoin and crypto and, and technology more broadly um, in a way that doesn't stifle innovation and that doesn't dissuade 
entrepreneurs and investors from really um, you know deploying capital in in these jurisdictions versus others. Um, you know, and with Bitcoin being a neutral, borderless, jurisdiction agnostic asset, um, yeah. you know, it's it, there, there's a lot of interesting game theory at play um, where for every country that is going to, um, you know, disavow it, you will have others that create havens for it. Um, so, you know, I think that you know, there certainly needs to be more thorough consideration of, um, I would say, open, uh, being more open uh, or uh, to regulation than being more stringent. Got it. I want to talk, and, and it is very interesting too that that you're suggesting that maybe you're you're underweight your conviction on Bitcoin. I think that's a that's fascinating. Talk to me about Janet Yellen. Is she going to be a big risk uh, to Bitcoin here? Is, is she just clueless? I mean, she's calling this, uh, you know, uh, an illicit activity tool when we know that Bitcoin is used less uh, for illicit activity than cash is. Is she just uneducated? Is this the you know first two months on the job cluelessness? What's going on here? And all respect to Janet Yellen, okay, but you know I, I'm curious. That's a great question. It's actually something that uh, we talked about internally at, at Arc. Um, uh, oh, I've got bugs. I know it all. Yeah, got the little uh, the little chip on, on the back uh, that has <laughs> access right. to, to every conversation. Um, <laughs> But uh, it was actually in response to, to her first point of, of critique, uh, which we actually tweeted about, um, that, that was around criminal activity um, and Bitcoin being uh, facilitating criminal activity. Um, our response to that was actually, this is a very, this is a positive for Bitcoin. If, uh, if Yellen is still looking at criminal activity as the primary point of critique for uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, what is interesting as well is uh, the next month, so basically the month of February, where she 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 had basically cr criticized Bitcoin for criminal activity in January, and then February she's like, you know, this is a tool for speculation and it's inefficient. Um, so she went from you know criminal activity to you know another recycled uh, common critique of this is just purely a as a means for speculation. Um, right. So it actually gave us comfort, um, yeah. and in a lot of ways, I expect. Uh, you know, the United States and these uh, global hegemonies to one day come out and say uh, Bitcoin is either one going to be a global threat to our monetary sovereignty, in which wow. case we need to figure out a way to stop it, or uh, we need to figure out a way to complement it uh, with our existing operations. So whether that right. be allocating it as a portion to, in their central bank reserves or, or whatever the case is. Um, and we're starting to see that in other emerging markets like Nigeria outright banning Bitcoin um, and then senators coming out and saying, you know, this is basically making our own fiat currency worthless. Um, you know, th th that's the sort of the tone that we expect or the narrative shift that we expect. Um, yeah. So for Yellen to come out uh, and use, you know, FUD or fear, uncertainty and doubt um, that has been recycled over the last decade now um, means that, yeah, we're still early. Uh, and they're not really paying attention to this. I like that uh, that argument, and I love how you turned it around because really, what what I love is when I talk to people about how phenomenal Tesla is and how undervalued their energy business is, for example, uh, and and I get people going, "What Tesla? I'll never drive a Tesla. I I need a gas car." I think to myself, like, still early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good thing. 
I, I don't know if you saw the Elon's tweet uh, like a few days ago, oh. but showing like a, a horse carriage uh, newspaper uh, that basically said like, it was basically saying, are you really going to drive uh, automobiles uh, and you're going to have to do maintenance and change tires? Like how much yeah. more expensive is that going to be uh, versus just, you know, riding a horse carriage? Um, and That's so, brilliant. you know, the analogy was, okay, well, electric vehicles uh, to, to the internal combustion engine is, is going through that same evolution and skepticism. That is so brilliant. I love that. I want to talk to you about energy with uh, Bitcoin. This is a big issue. Uh, obviously, currently the, the energy usage is, is it's high, but it's been relatively flat. Like it, it seems like its usage has been going up, but it's, it's uh, consumption has been relatively flat uh, relative to that increase in usage. Uh, so it looks like there's some kind of efficiency built into the system. I don't understand that. How, how can they make it more efficient when it becomes harder to mine? Can, can you speak to that a little bit or you get less when you mine? Yeah, sure. So um, I'd say it's taking a step back and, and, and sort of uh, providing some sort of um, uh, explanation for the use of mining. Um, so mining is basically um, the mechanism by which you can eliminate that trusted third party or intermediary, right? Um, where if you think of a traditional set centralized system like a PayPal, um, you have a single authority that is able to facilitate transactions and secure um, the network and add credibility to the institution um, for participants who are involved, right? If I get frauded on PayPal, I, I'll email PayPal and let them know and they'll issue a chargeback um, or they'll say, you yeah, know, there's an error in your account um, and they will facilitate transactions from one PayPal account to another. Um, the, the, the value proposition of Bitcoin is that it eliminates that need for a trusted third party um, and instead, instead replaces it with, um, you know, economic incentives um, by which anyone can, uh, if they see uh, an economic incentive to do so, contribute to the network. And contribute to the network means facilitating transactions and securing the network. Um, so miners have, have a dual role of, of basically bundling transactions in a block um, and verifying that those transactions are indeed legitimate. Um, and uh, in return for that, uh, are issued with uh, newly mined Bitcoin or newly issued Bitcoin. So in return for their services, um, they are the um, they 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 receive a compensation in the form of of Bitcoin. Um, now the energy consumption, which many deem as inefficient, is actually a fundamental feature um, in adding credibility to Bitcoin. Um, right. The analogy that I like to give here is is with gold, right? Uh, gold. Uh, is is valuable and has converged as a universal store of value not because it's shiny and it looks <laughs> nice as a re tooth replacement um it's because it had specific properties that deemed it suitable uh to uh preserve wealth over space and time um okay. in addition to being fungible um and and something universally recognizable it was also something that was very hard to produce and still is. Um, there is a clear, explicit proof of work that gold miners have to go through um, that adds to sort of the unforgeable nature of the asset, right? Um, mm. Unlike the sort of US dollar, which can be printed with like a stroke of a keyboard, 
Um, gold, you need to basically prove and create an explicit cost to, uh, to mining gold. So in the same way, it's, uh, Bitcoin uh, requires that pro prolific resource consumption and that poor computational scalability to unlock the security guarantees that make it this global, uncensorable monetary system. Um, now, when it comes to sort of the, 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 the misconceptions that we're seeing today, and I think the biggest one is that energy consumption does not necessarily equate to pollution or CO2 emissions, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there is a question of the energy mix that, uh, that the miners are using to secure the network. The mining right. industry specifically is a perfect competition and it is a ruthless, it's ruthlessly competitive um, in that yeah. they are exclusively profit maximizing entities and they are looking for the cheapest access to electricity um, in order to mine their Bitcoin uh, to optimize their, their operations. And it so happens that uh, renewables are converging as that cheapest access to electricity as well as stranded energy assets that otherwise would have been dumped um, as being a mechanism to basically unlock stranded energy assets to mine Bitcoin. Um, so all that to say that the um, energy source that is being used to mine Bitcoin is A, either would have already been wasted, right? So like basically natural glass, natural gas flares or peaker plants, right? During the off season, uh, where they're where it costs more to dump than to mine Bitcoin or um, as renewables. So in, in China, you know, most of the Bitcoin mining is actually hydro. Um, and so I, I just think in general, there just the reason why Bitcoin's energy uh, footprint is kind of their hands on and eyes on the energy footprint is because it's just much easier to quantify than traditional banking systems. But if you were to right. quantify kind of the lights on at a JP Morgan at every bank branch and the number of computers that had to, to, to go on and, 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 and the amount of resources and, and that, 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 that are required um, to sustain a traditional legacy system. Um, an apples to apples comparison would actually show that Bitcoin is far more efficient. I mean, think about it, like the Federal Reserve has like 2000 economists at it, you know, that's yeah. 2000 people with houses, air conditioners and, and computers, and they're just, they're just talking about printing money. <laughs> I don't want to oversimplify their role. Okay. I respect the Fed a lot, but uh, okay. So this is interesting because ordinarily when you hear, oh, well, Bitcoin's using renewable, you think, okay, fine, but they're taking away potential renewable energy that could be going to something else, uh, you know, somebody else's use. But what you're saying is because it's a perfect competition and, and, and we're constantly looking for ways to reduce our electricity costs, it actually makes sense to produce more solar fields in Vegas or hydro dams in China because that's going to give them a 1% or, or, you know, even let's just say an extreme here, a 1% competitive advantage over the next dude mining. And so it incentivizes them to build this infrastructure. And, and really, they're creating something that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that, that, that is exactly what I'm saying. But in addition to that, I'm, I'm also saying, um, you know, you, you and, and that's really interesting that you bring that up. You're like, well, it could have been used for something else. Right. Right. And what the market has told us is that there is a clear demand to use it for uh, a, in order to back a non-state synthetic monetary commodity. 
in 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 a yeah. lot of like Bitcoin Bitcoiners views, I, I I would say that there's like no more noble of a use of energy uh -huh. than to back this permissionless open monetary network that exists outside yeah. the purview of legacy systems. And so ultimately, twist. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it is. And it is a twist. And it's like, it's something <laughs> that, that Bitcoiners like to bring up, but it's like, uh -huh. it, 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 it's really just a matter of opinion as to whether something like Bitcoin sure. should exist. And if something like Bitcoin should exist, which clearly the market is telling us it should, uh, then, mm -hmm. then it just converges toward perfect competition. I can, I can promise you that if miners uh, see that there is a, no means to be profitable um, uh, by mining Bitcoin uh, with traditional fossil fuels, then they're yeah. going to go to renewables or sure. whatever the case is. So, um, yeah, th that's the framing. I maybe have to, I maybe took the most extreme stance, but uh, I, I feel no, like I it. doesn't really uh, doesn't really um, you know give merit to that stance. I know I, it's totally fine. No, I get that. I want to talk about that though. So non-state money, personally, uh, I don't ever see the dollar going away. You know, I do think there will be a digital dollar. I do think that the Federal Reserve will have the Fed coin or the dollar coin or whatever they call it. I do think the blockchain or, or just blockchain technology, excuse me, in, in general is, is phenomenal. Uh, and I do think that that'll probably get incorporated into our monetary system, but I don't ever see them getting rid of something that they can use to print as a primary source of currency. You know, I could see the bit, uh, I could see Bitcoin in general being treated like a gold, but not as this sort of, it's everything that we use. How much, I mean, isn't it a risk factor that maybe people are pricing in that Bitcoin's going to replace the dollar and when that doesn't happen, Bitcoin crashes? uh yeah so that's a that's a good question um yeah. and, and and that goes back to like basically what you define as success in bitcoin right i think that there's yeah. a massive yeah. spectrum of opportunity that bitcoin presents um you know on one hand you have you know the the early days of just okay this is just a weird internet magic money for just a bunch <laughs> of nerds um yeah. and then and, and then i would say in between that you have um, you know, a digital gold, right, where it's a, a five to ten trillion dollar market cap as being sort of this Internet native store of value doesn't necessarily compete with fiat currencies. Um, but uh, but it is it is something that is used as an alternative asset um, like real estate or, or just general commodities. Um, and then and then I would say one step further is as a potential uh, alternative to uh fiat currencies in in weaker regimes uh so you know we okay. actually size bitcoin's opportunity as a catalyst for currency demonetization in emerging markets yeah um, yeah so i i would say 10 15 years ago uh we had a a, a venezuelan version of meet kevin who was basically uh -huh. saying that the boulevard would uh, probably never go away um and you know as Oops. we know that that that, that didn't turn out to be the case and so the argument is that yeah human humans uh we should we should basically remove the decision making um uh when it comes to monetary issuance away from humans and into something that is open uh predictable and verifiable um you know do i think that bitcoin is going to replace the us dollar um no uh not maybe not in our, our lifetime uh I, I don't think that's the case uh but 
Uh, do I think that it's that, that that Bitcoin potentially replacing the U.S. dollar is priced in at these levels? Absolutely not. Um, you know, if you look at Bitcoin at a one trillion dollar market cap at, at, at the at the high, I think now what what is it eight hundred nine hundred billion? Um, and you look at sort of just uh, gold as a ten trillion dollar market cap. If you look at the M two base money outside of the top four currencies, so if you think of yeah, if you think outside of the yuan, the yen, the euro, the dollar, so you assume that those aren't going to be replaced, but that okay. there's a that there's a mechanism by which Bitcoin captures the, the some share of outside of those top four currencies. That that M two base money that's a forty six trillion dollar base money, and if Bitcoin captures wow. about five percent of that, that's a two trillion dollar opportunity in th there alone. Um, so uh, there's a lot of room for Bitcoin to grow before it becomes a threat uh, to U.S monetary sovereignty but at its full potential it ends up basically being a black hole for fiat currency um and if you think about fiat currency i'll push back what you said a little bit and saying that it's really only a hundred year phenomenon um you know if you just look at the us dollar it was once backed by gold uh yeah. that was about 50 years ago only um and so to think that you know in the next maybe century we're not going to see a mishap uh um, and if you look at the evolution of global reserve currencies over time, you know, the franc was at one point, the pound. Um, uh, so, so, you know, and, and the sterling, those, those end up basically, um, you know, tre trending towards obsolescence um, over the long term. Are, are you uh, taking a, a Peter Schiffian approach here of, of the dollar's going to crash big time and you need to get out of the dollar ASAP? Uh, not really one. I'm not really a macro expert, so I, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to make speculations on the strength of, of the dollar. <laughs> um, okay. uh, I, I will say what's funny is Peter Schiff is a, a massive Bitcoin skeptic, which is very, which I think is quite ironic and, and kind of funny. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. but, but, uh, I, 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 I would say that the macro, uh, tailwinds that we've seen in the last, um, call it few years has really made a compelling case um, for Bitcoin um, as a hedge against uh, general currency devaluation. Um, so, you know, it's, I think starts with, you know, emerging markets. It's very interesting to even see like correlations between yuan devaluation and inflows into Bitcoin. Um, yeah. It ends up, it ends up towards, you know, a, a potential weakening of the dollar. Um, and if that's the case, uh, taking that um, sort of hedge against economic apocalypse by allocating into Bitcoin, I think is is a sound uh, is a sound uh, case. You mentioned, I mean, this is this is very interesting because I kept thinking about Bitcoin as as maybe being something that can be with a dollar, but we're not so worried about that. We're worried about the Zimbabwe, the Venezuela, where basically what what happened here is. You had this complete collapse of trust of of central banking authority in, in these countries, or even government authority, because many many central banks are linked; they're not independent of their uh, of their governments like they are here in the United States, supposedly. <laughs> but we won't go down that rabbit hole. Uh, so what you're saying is, what if you have a Bitcoin, you don't have this risk of. Uh, these these crises in maybe Venezuela or Zimbabwe because there's no way you can have hyperinflation because you're really pegged to 
uh, you know, supply and demand driven economy. And you could actually stabilize emerging markets by using Bitcoin outside of the big four, as you mentioned. That's exactly right. Um, and there are, I think, a really interesting points that you bring up um, that we can break down a little further. Um, I'd say the, the first thing is, uh, yes, Bitcoin being uh, a borderless um, sort of asset and network, right? Where it works in, in the exact same way it works anywhere around the world. And it's in one that what the one that no one controls. Um, I, I would say that the second is in it, you, you, talking about the hyperinflation in the Zimbabwe and Venezuela really just brings up the broader point of how all of the um, monetary discretion that humans have is a slippery slope. Um, I can tell wow. you that Zimbabwe never really considered that they were that their currency was going to be hyperinflated. It was just a yeah. complete mismanagement of that. Um, and so if you even think of like the argument of the recent injection uh, of stimulus um, where, you know, even, you know, the USD's base is exponentially increasing. It's gone parabolic just this year. Um, yeah. You know, what's not to say we're not going to see even more unconventional monetary policies and, you know, what people like to call QE infinity. Right. It's just going to we're just going to sort of inflate um, our money away. And I, obviously that's that's definitely you know, much more simplistic than, than, than reality. But it's to say that like, you know, this is a new paradigm. The economy is going physical to digital. I, I think that we're going to look back at this and believe that like fiat currencies in general was just such an absurd concept where we're going to tell ourselves, wow. really, we, I can't believe that we left the decision of monetary issuance in the hands of a few people like that's that's sort of the that's sort of the i think the framing and and call it you know past our lifetimes yeah. um and and then finally uh sort of where how bitcoin can sort of evolve as this grassroots movement in emerging markets is what, what what we're starting to see where you know you have these parallel economies emerge um uh that end up demanding a more uh predictable asset uh, than what their current uh, regime offers. Um, you know, if you were to ask a Venezuelan what they would love, they would love the dollar. If they could get sure. the dollar, they would love the dollar. Um, but there are strict capital controls and there are, you know, very sort of difficult um, avenues to access it. Um, you know, Bitcoin perhaps provides a second alternative where businesses start to demand uh, Bitcoin instead of, you know, th their fiat currency. And it just becomes a spiraling effect from there. Um, and now the reason why it's so compelling, and I'll finish off by saying this, and, and it's what you alluded to, is Bitcoin represents more than the separation of money and state. Bitcoin represents the separation of property rights and state, where wow. the enforcement of ownership in Bitcoin is not from a top-down local authority. It is enforced by cryptography. You have access to a private key. You own Bitcoin and no one but that private key is going to dictate whether or not you own Bitcoin. And so it goes back to Bitcoin being this sort of borderless, um, neutral platform where it doesn't distinguish identity based on IP address or geography yeah. or email. It is private keys. Um, and uh, it doesn't rely on a local authority to enforce the property rights or that ownership, it has a completely independent property system. 
Um, and so that's sort of why I think in emerging markets specifically, uh, we're going to start to see um, a compelling case to just hold Bitcoin, especially because you can just do it on a hard drive, unlike gold, where, you know, it's you, you got to carry chunks of it if you want to own it yourself. Yeah, unless you lose that in a landfill. But uh, topic for a different video, <laughs> that one with that big story, what was it, like a quarter of a billion yeah. dollars or something? I feel bad for that person. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me for a second. So, uh, Kathy, uh, she sees this potential for the Federal Reserve to have to adjust their interest rate policy much sooner because of this belief that potentially we could see inflation happening sooner, which is one of the reasons Kathy sees Bitcoin as, as a hedge. What if she's wrong? And what if the Fed's right? And what if what if there is no inflation? You know, we see these spikes, inflation goes away, and, and people are like, Well, dang, I was holding Bitcoin for inflation to come. It's not happening. We're back to no inflation. We're back in our deflationary, you know, spiral, uh, with thanks to technology and, and a reduction of the velocity of money. Well, screw it, let's dump Bitcoin. So I, I would say Bitcoin as an inflationary hedge is only one of the multitude of use cases for Bitcoin. Um, I think the very unique thing about Bitcoin and its value accrual dynamics is that all use cases are positive sum and additive. So what I mean by that is if you're owning Bitcoin for an inflationary hedge, then that yeah. means that the Bitcoin that you own cannot be owned for using Bitcoin as a remittance mechanism or using sure. Bitcoin as a protection against arbitrary asset seizure or using Bitcoin as a catalyst for currency demonetization in emerging markets. So there are all these um, use cases um, in which I think that the inflationary hedge use case, even if we were not to see uh, Bitcoin, uh, the, the US dollar, um, you know, in, in, in inflate the way that, you know, may, maybe some are expecting, um, there's still a, there's still a compelling enough case and compelling enough demand drivers by which that that ends up being uh, a small portion um, of the bigger pie. Um, again, we're not really talking about Bitcoin at a $20 trillion market cap here. You know, Bitcoin is like at a $900 billion market cap and Kathy likes to get it just feels big. feels big. Relative to what though? It's like, it's That's a big, it's like a, it's, it's a large cap equity stock. If that like to think that something as neutral and permissionless and as monumental as Bitcoin is like half of like, Apple. Like I, I just think that that's like you know, it put things it put things into into perspective uh, for sure. Um, so it, yeah, it, I, I think that you know, Bitcoin has had a very nice run. It really has, and there are these insane cycles. And some people say that they've never really seen um, these parabolic rises happen as frequently and as condensed as we've seen Bitcoin. Uh, but you know. I think that it, that this is a new paradigm for wealth transfer and the preservation of wealth. Um, and, and, and you're not talking about like a new paradigm, like a Ray Dalio, uh, the great deleveraging crash is coming. No, no. Yeah, I'm talking like just a new monetary paradigm. Of yeah, like, okay. you, you, yeah, you look at the context of monetary systems. We started at barter and we went to gold and we went to fiat. I think that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies uh, seem like sort of the next logical evolution in how we um and how we uh, settle economically incredible yeah. why why not use staking instead of energy transfer or is that the direction we're going to 
Yeah, again, that, that goes back to there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. Uh, so proof of stake is, uh, is an unproven security model relative to proof of work. Um, and, you know, we've seen Ethereum as uh, kind of the, 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 the poster child of some of the difficulties in transitioning from proof of work to proof of stake um, and how it becomes much more of a technical risk um, and then it is sort of this hard base money asset that is predictable and reliable and does a few things right. Um, so I think perhaps the future for alternative networks that might complement Bitcoin, um, we could see a proof of stake. Um, we could see a proof of stake like alternative, uh, mm -hmm. but for something um, that necessitates um, high security guarantees, yeah. Um, the proof of work in Bitcoin um, is unmatched. Why? Like what? I mean, like, I mean, has Ethereum had, had issues or, or like, yeah. I mean, if, if Ethereum hasn't had issues, I mean. Ethereum, ha Ethereum has had issues. Ethereum has tried ah. to transition to proof of stake uh, since okay. 2017. Uh, four years later, it's still, uh, it's still reliant on proof of work. Um, and wow. that is the issue um, in proof of stake um, you know, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of unanswered questions, um, to basically, um, successfully transitioning from proof of work to proof of stake. Um, in, in, in a lot of ways, uh, I, I'd say the simplest, um, explanation for why there are questions around proof of stake is because, um, of its perpetual motion machine, like security guarantee. What I mean by that is. Whereas proof of work has explicit costs that are independent of the network mechanics that are being used to secure the network, proof of stake relies on kind of this internal snake eating its tail, uh, where it relies on the underlying assets themselves to secure the network. But the security oh. of that network is only a function of the value of those assets. And so it's wow. this sort of back and forth where to bootstrap that becomes very, very difficult. Um, and the incentive, you can spiral. Exactly. You effectively can. Yeah, it's you can spiral or or it's basically so, quote unquote, secure where you have everyone staking it and the value mm -hmm. so high that it becomes unusable as a store of value or mechanism to transfer because most of it is being staked. Um, and so there are definitely questions uh, uh, around proof of stake. Um, I'm definitely not the, I, I would say an, an expert um, in the mechanics of proof of stake. So I, I don't wanna you know, talk beyond just um, you know, what, what we've laid out there. But, uh, but what I can say is that it, it offers nowhere near the censorship resistant guarantees that a proof of work offers because there isn't that provable explicit cost, right? Miners, for instance, uh, in yeah. proof of work are spending billions of dollars upfront to build out this network. Whereas uh, proof of stake ends up perhaps even converging towards a plutocracy um, where you have just a few stakeholders buying up all of the liquidity of the network um, and, and, and bonding it uh, to secure the network. Uh, but then it becomes a matter of just who has more money versus who's willing to take more risk and have skin in the game in explicit costs 
to secure that network. So it's a much and then different- they call themselves the Fed and then start manipulating the currency by being able to release stakes or not. When you in, when you incorporate on-chain governance into that aspect, yeah. and that's part of why Bitcoin is is again um, so interesting, is because the governance mechanism is just so di- dispersed that it's hard to centralize control. But if you you can imagine a scenario where you have an, a network that also has a governance um, on-chain governance mechanism baked into the network, where the largest holders are the ones dictating the future of that network. And so, sure. to your point it basically ends up re- returning to status quo um, <laughs> where the the people who are able to buy it up are the ones who are controlling the network. Whereas with oh. Bitcoin, it doesn't matter how much Bitcoin that you hold, um, you are no, you, you're not gonna change the way that the network works because your Incredible. security is not bound to your holdings. Why can BlockFi or some of these other companies, Voyager, whatever, why can they pay me 6% interest just for holding Bitcoin there? Is this is this BitConnect all over again? Is this a Ponzi? What's going on here? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I would say a few things. The, the first is there's a there's a, mis, a misperception between offering annualized rates and annual rates. So like uh-huh. what's funny is like the 6% annualized it's at any given time, but you're going to see massive fluctuations that might end up converging towards two or three percent over the year. Um, mm. the, the second thing is that you know there is huge custody risk, um, and people are taking massive risks by custodying it um, in um, you know a, 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 in in sort of a counterparty. And so I mean, we, we and we've seen we've seen like hacks and, and leaks. Um, and security leaks uh, from users who end up uh, trying to generate yields by going to these more uh, esoteric products. Um, with BlockFi specifically, um, again, I'm not, I would say I'm not the perfect person to speak, but I, I, I've like followed Zach Prince, who's their CEO, and and they've done, they've done tremendous things. They're doing, uh, they, they found an inefficiency in the market. Um, and I think because we're so early and crypto first companies aren't actually as integrated into the traditional financial system as what we might see um, you know, in a few years, there's still some significant arbitrage opportunities uh, that users are capitalizing on. Um, mm-hmm. I expect those yields to basically converge to kind of traditional savings yields on, on checkings or savings accounts and, and traditional banks, but uh, the risk, it's just you know much, much higher risk than like, you know, putting it on a, on a JP Morgan, you know, 2% uh, uh, savings account or whatever it is. Now, they they say that they take this, uh, that 95% of their crypto or the crypto you have with them is put onto like a Gemini cold storage yeah. uh, account or whatever, or wallet. Uh, and that 5% is in a hot wallet, which then they have insurance for. Is this just like marketing BS or? or no, there, there's merit to that. There, 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 okay. there's, yeah, m- most exchanges. So you can think of that in the context of like uh, BlockFi. Uh, I'm sorry, you can think of co- BlockFi in the context of like a traditional exchange, right? Okay. Where most exchanges are also storing their, um, uh, their Bitcoin in cold wallets um, and are projecting what sort of liquidity um, uh, uh, on a daily basis would be required to be stored on, on hot um that um 
uh, that would uh, that would basically allow them to facilitate withdrawals if uh, if users request it. Um, but you can kind of see a slippery slope here, where um, if you saw a potential equivalent bank run on exchanges, uh, it would be very interesting to see whether or not they could meet that demand. So imagine every single user on like BlockFi wants to suddenly withdraw all of their assets. Um, you know, could could BlockFi potentially um, meet that uh, meet that request? Um, and so that's why, in general, you know, users tend to um, you know are 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 encouraged to um, keep as much of it uh, in self custody as possible, uh, and then ultimately play around with you know generating yields on exchanges or, or service providers that allow for that. Um, with a much smaller portion of of total uh, holdings. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Uh, so another question that I have is, uh, let's see here. Is it just impossible, basically, to get into the business of mining because there's so much competition? Like, can can somebody just go on Amazon and buy a you know a miner or whatever? I don't know wherever you might buy it and actually be competitive. No, no, <laughs> you definitely cannot go on Amazon and buy a miner and be competitive. And that goes to show, and, and we've written research about this, but the evolution of the mining industry, which really started off as like a hobbyist activity, where if you had asked me this question 10 years ago, yeah, you could mine Bitcoin from the CPU drawn from desktops. And then as soon as people started to see uh, the evolution, so we went from CPUs to GPUs to FPGAs, to now ASICs or application specific integrated circuits who um, the hardware has a sole purpose of just mining Bitcoin. So mining has evolved from a hobbyist activity to um, a professionalized industry uh, where you have extremely large scale data centers that um, are in like the tundra mining Bitcoin in these plants um, that require you know, specialized services for maintenance, for operation, uh, you know, long-term leasing and purchase power agreements. Um, so yeah, mining Bitcoin is, is definitely an industry in and of itself and one that requires um, extreme expertise where, you know, your typical enthusiast, um, you know, has no business uh, being involved in. Got it. Okay. I know you've got to go soon. So I want to ask you one more question. Is there a future, uh, and, and uh, I don't know if you can answer it. Uh, is there a future of expanding your investments uh, into other cryptos or are we sticking to, to the BTC? Yeah, I, I think um, we, we're certainly interested in other crypto assets. Um, we're also interested in, in figuring out ways to gain more efficient exposure um, to the opportunity. Um, and so, um, you know, that's, that's sort of part of my role is, is thinking about it. Um, uh, but I think in, in general, you know, Bitcoin's the reserve asset of the crypto asset ecosystem, uh, for institutional investors, um, you know, getting in on Bitcoin is, 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 is likely the, the sufficient enough to gain exposure to the entire opportunity. And I think Ethereum specifically is, a is, a, it makes an extremely compelling case for being a complement. Um, and in general, you know, other assets that are being built on top of Ethereum um, as well make a compelling case. Uh, and, you know, any asset that provides monetary assurance, but that is unique enough in its ability to provide that monetary assurance than Bitcoin is. Um, you know, we're will not smart in contracts. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, will smart contracts at Ethereum come to Bitcoin? Um, 
I don't think so. As I don't think as uh, as effectively as as Ethereum has, because again, Ethereum has made explicit trade-offs um, where it is not nearly as secure, decentralized, but it is much more composable, and you can have a lot of feature sets. I think that we're going to see a bridge between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, I think that there are certainly efforts uh, to build smart contracts on Bitcoin. Uh, but ultimately, I, I believe Ethereum will end up taking most of the share um, of sort of smart contract applications. 60 seconds on NFTs, and then we got to go. Uh, Logan Paul raised $3 million on a trading car he digitally created. What, like, can he just make five more and, and then dilute the value of that one? I mean, like, how? Yeah, look, and I, mean, I know you guys are interested. <laughs> Logan Paul, Logan Paul gets it. I think he's one. You have to think of it in the context of he's a content creator. He's on the cutting edge. I don't know if you've been following his sort of Pokemon rabbit oh, hole. Yeah. Too. Uh, in general, you have to think of these as uh, actually in a lot of ways philosophically aligned with Bitcoin uh, in that value is subjective. People yeah. like what others can't have. Um, when you have <laughs> a world of abundance, especially in the digital world, and you can have provable scarcity, even if that scarcity is issued by a single individual like a Logan Paul, you know, people want the next big thing. They want to feel like they are a status symbol. It's like the same thing of like, why are you going to buy Picasso? Can't Picasso paint a ton of other paintings? Well, it's like, well, no, Picasso has a life uh, and he's now passed away and he's only had a finite number of paintings and people render his, his art as being uh, valuable. But all of that is subjective. Um, so um, that's more of a, a human psychology question than it is, a, is Logan Paul crazy? I think NFTs um, are, uh, are definitely, uh, there's, there's definitely a case to be made. We've definitely gotten overheated. We're seeing a lot of exuberance here. Um, uh, but, but I expect uh, digital watermarks uh, that are provably scarce uh, to be uh, a, an up-and-coming use case in the next uh, five to ten years. Amazing. Absolutely incredible interview. Super insightful. I know you've got to run. How do people get in touch with ARC uh, and uh, give a, give a shout-out to the company? Yeah, sure. You can just go to arc-invest.com. We have a website. We publish blogs. Uh, and then we obviously have our Twitter, ARC Invest. Uh, and you can follow the analysts as well on Twitter absolutely amazing thank you so very much for your time uh folks if you've enjoyed this consider subscribing and sharing uh, thank you so very much again i look forward to having a conversation again in the future thanks kevin great for being here